Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Naomi Smith. The England fans among you join us from the blessed ignorance of the past. Wednesday afternoon to be precise. Did England scrape through to the Euro 2020 final after a nervy 2-1 victory against Denmark or crash out in a Scandinoir horror after a chaotic 4-4 draw followed by a penalty loss? Either way, we hope your hangover isn't too severe. And on this week's show, I am severely outnumbered by authors. Ian Dunt is editor-at-large of Politics UK and author of How to Be a Liberal. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello, hello. Now, the government's uh, Nationality and Borders Bill is out, and it is about as caring and sharing as we expected. So uh, arriving in the UK without permission will now be a criminal offence. There will be special new downgraded status for asylum seekers that the government fails to deport. And there's going to be new age assessments for the mythical adults to pretending to be children. I mean, it just sounds like a pretty horrific set of proposals. Uh, talk us through the, the standout things. Yeah, OK. So, look, I mean, I don't like the look of um, Clause uh, 37, Part 2C1, which essentially says that anyone turning up um, in Britain without the entry permits uh, would be subject, is, has committed an offence, will be subject either to 12 months or to four years in jail. It's not entirely clear which. Now, there's a bit of um, debate among people, uh, sort of in immigration lawyers, looking at that as to exactly what it means. But the majority view is that that is essentially the criminalisation of anyone coming to the UK through an irregular route. So let me explain that. So like some asylum seekers will come, they'll come on a student visa. Once they're on the student visa, they'll flip it to be, you know, to, to claim asylum. This is not that. This is people who have essentially caught a dinghy here on the back of a lorry. Now, that is how the vast majority of asylum seekers get to this country. It's a messy affair escaping a country and trying to enter into another one. That seems to target them specifically. There's other measures against the boats. One of them seems to act as if once you're in UK territorial water, you can be arrested at that point in the water before you have a chance to get to the land to claim asylum. Another um, essentially amends previous legislation so that an offence that was previously about bringing people to the bring helping asylum seekers reach the UK for gain now has the for gain removed. So that anyone that even helps, this could potentially apply to a fisherman who rescues someone from the water and, and, and brings them in. And, and the RNLI even... have, have tweeted about this, as I understand it. The RNLI have highlighted a Home Office tweet that says, uh, we're not going to prosecute the RNLI. Um, I mean, I can't see anything in the bill and far more you know, learned figures than me have also looked at the bill and thought, I can't see the bit in the bill that allows you to do that. What you often get from the Home Office, and you would see this very common, you'd see this under Labour as well, is you just do this broad brushstroke, illiterate fucking legislation. And then the Home Office comes out and goes, oh, don't worry, mate, not talking, not talking not about you. Not yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't worry about that. We, we won't target you. When you're like, well, yeah, but I, I kind of would rather live in a society where that was written into the fucking law rather than having to rely on Home Office guys to not be dicks about it. Returning to the show is Gavin Esler, who joined us for one of our very first shows as rebranded Oh God, What Now? from Romaniacs. He also has got a new book out, How Britain Ends, English Nationalism and the Rebirth of Four Nations. Welcome back, Gavin. It's very good to be back. Now, Gavin, nothing stirs nationalism more than an international football tournament, as we knew during the Brexit referendum, um, uh, and David Cameron did not. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> Scotland's journey at the Euros 
wasn't a, a, a particularly long one, although I did love uh, Nicola Sturgeon pointing out, you know, her congratulations to the England team, but reminding them that the only team they hadn't actually beaten was Scotland because it ended in a nil-nil draw. You've written a lot about the effects of, of good leaders who tell the right kind of stories. And, you know, we're hearing a lot of people say they prefer Gareth Southgate to Prime Minister Boris Johnson. <laughs> what makes him so good at what he does in your view? <laughs> Uh, quite a lot, actually, and I, I speak as a as, as a Scotsman who is used to disappointment from the Scottish international team, and I'm very very happy to support England in this contest, which I suggested a few years ago in a Scotsman column that when Scotland were out, I'm happy to support England. I got quite a lot of letters, including one which I rather <laughs> liked. Um, I'd rather support Satan and all his minions gloriously arrayed than any England football team. It's just wow. the way I am. But that aside, um, you. Know, we've all we've all got our, our vices. I really like Southgate and I really like this team. And I like them not just because they're great on the pitch. I like the leadership that they show, which is patriotic. And it's patri- yeah. patriotism is about us, who we yeah. are, and as in this case, England, and what's good about us. What I don't like and I've never liked is when it slides into the nasty side of nationalism, which is all about other people. So when people boo the German national anthem mm. or when they boo their own players who are taking the knee, that's the difference. And I think Southgate, in his quiet but very firm way, and the team, these young lads, in their way, have shown great leadership. Absolutely. And I love that you're unpicking patriotism from nationalism because they are not synonymous, no matter uh, what some of the right-wing media would have us believe. Now, our guest this week is a writer for some of the country's biggest satirical news shows, including Have I Got News For You and Dead Ringers. Her love of writing and performance was formed during a childhood of, um, I I think we can describe it as alternative spiritual education. Uh, And growing up, she earned nicknames including Crybaby, Showoff, and Drama Queen. And after 30 years, she was given an explanation for why these names followed her around, because she discovered that she was, in fact, autistic. Drama Queen is therefore the name of her new memoir, which is out now. Sarah Gibbs, a big welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Now, Sarah, you described a childhood that was kind of full of crystals and spiritual healing, a question for you. Did any of that help you during the pandemic? Like, could you deploy <laughs> a, kind of, a chunk of malachite to dispel negative virus energy? No, um, all it did really is convince me somewhat narcissistically that um, I was somehow responsible for the pandemic because I don't really like hanging out with people or crowded areas or anything. And I, I think there's <laughs> a bit of it. <laughs> yeah, basically, I, I manifested it is what my um, my teachers and the adults around me would have said is that you oh, manifested no. your reality. And I kind of dragged everyone else down with me. So I'm really sorry about that, guys. <laughs> But I mean, it's it's kind of like one area of like woo-woo that didn't take off during COVID, right? Like, you know, 5G <laughs> did, for goodness sake. Uh, you know, are, are you surprised more people didn't turn to kind of, you know, crystals and and that kind of stuff over the last year? Or maybe they didn't. I just didn't notice. There's every possibility that they did. And we're just running in really different circles. <laughs> you're, you're probably right. Now, we've just seen um, the NHS get awarded the George Cross for its heroism during COVID and a paltry 1% pay rise. What, what, what did you make of that? <sighs> 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, clap, clap, clap. Well done, guys. Here's the highest possible honor. Also, fuck you. Um, yeah. is kind of how it felt. Like, if you're going to give people a pay rise that is, you know, up to, depending on your metrics, what, 2% less than the rate of inflation, you're giving them a real term pay cut. I mean, not only in a time of national crisis when people have been through the most harrowing, unimaginable work situation that, I mean, I'm intensely privileged to be sitting here at my house for the pandemic going, you know, I'm just going to ride this out. There were people risking their lives every day to treat people, losing their lives, losing loved ones, losing their colleagues. And I mean, even before the pandemic, the NHS was underfunded, staff were underpaid and overworked and you know i read adam k's book and i was horrified it just seems like a slap in the face really that i mean of course it's a lovely honor um but you know you can't pay your bills with with an honor no you absolutely can't um but you can uh pay your bills if you're lucky enough to be in a privileged position as you've just mentioned that you are and you are a writer of political satire i'm really interested to know whether the pandemic was good for material or not, like all, all of the jokes about Joe Wicks and doing Zoom workouts in your pants kind of got used up really quickly. But maybe maybe it provided other material for you. Has it been generally good or generally bad for it, do you think? Unfortunately, you were asking the wrong girl because the, the when the pandemic hit was when I sort of, I took what I said was a hiatus from um, topical comedy because I wanted to focus on my book and other narrative projects. And then I just liked it so much. I don't think I'm ever going back. <laughs> like, I just I just found like it was this weight off my shoulders to not be constantly refreshing the news and thinking, how do I make this funny? How do I make this funny? I imagine that it was quite stressful for my colleagues to have to come up with you know, I guess fresh material from what is effectively a lot of loss of life and disaster and, and also things that are self-parodying. Like I came I came into topical comedy at a time when everything went to shit and everyone started parodying themselves. And so people say, what was it like? Was there a change? It's like, well, that's all I've ever known. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I sort of grew up in my comedic career in that era of Brexit and Trump. But yeah, I think by the by the time the pandemic hit, I was just worn out from topical comedy you know I had been writing the same I mean Brexit rumbled on for so long you were regurgitating the same material and you know it's it's the same sort of don't we know it (laughs) (laughs) you know I I think people don't understand how small and incestuous the world of topical comedy actually is it is the same small pool of writers and we're all going around the same like five or six shows um, trying to get like ring new material out of the same things and it just got exhausting so um, as much as I loved it and it was an important part of my life I'm very happy to be leaving that behind and focusing on things like uh, my novel and and narrative things that are coming up that I can't talk about but they're coming up well hopefully you're going to be able to talk about the book at least (laughs) and we are going to be talking to you about that in more detail later in the show also this week uh, the government's unlocking plans uh they're unraveling in the face of rapidly increasing cases I think it was looking like nearly 33,000 cases today as we went into the recording studio And in this new dawn of personal responsibility, will next month's illegal raves be lit with bonfires made of discarded face masks? Plus, in this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, as we get ready to return to quote-unquote normal, with the quote marks (laughs) bigger than Boris Johnson's comically oversized England flag, which cultural changes brought on by the pandemic do we think should stay on in our lives? 
time to get your personal responsibility on. Boris Johnson announced the final, supposedly, stage of England's unlocking this week. The mandate to wear face masks will be lifted, as will social distancing, restrictions on crowds for sporting events and nightclubs. Meanwhile, Politico has calculated that by unlocking day on July the 19th, there could be as many as half a million new cases pretty darn quick. Ian, on Wednesday morning, The Guardian had apocalyptic figures indicating that another 2 million people could contract the virus over the summer and 10 million could be isolating. Even Sajid Javid is admitting that we're entering what he refers to as uncharted territory. So tell us, what is the government playing at? I mean, you know, I think we can't resist like the most basic explanation, which is that, you know, they're moral delinquents with no capacity for sustained intellectual thought. And this is the kind of policy product that you get from those sets of people. There's clearly no you know, it is a complex situation and it's really hard to work out what the fuck you should do in it. However, they have not taken a complex approach to it. There's no discerning any difference between the areas that we know are safer and the areas that we know are more dangerous, right? I mean, so you look, the mask thing is the most, is the classic example of this, where like you can't possibly come up with an argument for why you would get rid of masks on public transport on cramped inside locations. Whereas, of course, you would on anything that is happening outside. We can kind of get rid of most restrictions on things that are happening outside. You could do that. That would make sense. You know, you don't see anything at all to prepare for the winter. Boris Johnson did a press conference the other day talking about where it's going to get worse in the winter. So, yeah, what the fuck are you doing to actually try and address that? Why don't we see any work? Why why do we not even discuss ventilation in buildings? There are various ways that you can increase ventilation in buildings, and some of them are very expensive. Some of them are much cheaper. It is just about basically putting fans by windows to keep on trying to pump the air in and out. What about trying to make sure that you actually have heating as far as possible and local council rules as far as possible that allow businesses to operate outside when we start getting to the winter? And yet, I mean, it feels like we're in the winter at the moment because the weather is so awful, but obviously it's going to get even worse. Fair enough. Yeah, we might need it now as well. Wouldn't mind heat right now. None of the work, you don't see any sort of deep or um, sort of um, well calibrated work on what we know to be dangerous and what we know to be safe, what we can do to really help businesses. What you see is this sort of degenerate, hysterical drive based on half formed ideas of what liberty is pushing us in a given direction and that's what we're looking at that is no more complex than that they are a bunch of babbling babies and we're forced to live with the repercussion of the decisions that they take one spin that they put out was that it was it was ditch masks to save the economy and we know that in places like east asia where masks have been common for a very long time because of sars and you know cultural reasons that it's just much more polite to cover your face if you're sneezing or coughing China is is looking set to have, you know, 8% growth over the next year. So how are they getting away? Why why isn't there more scrutiny over these ridiculous statements about unmasking to protect the economy when other economies are outperforming us and are very well masked? You see, the thing is, I, I kind of feel that the scrutiny is there. I mean, it's there if you want to read it. You know, I mean, it's not like, you know, we talk about it, we have articles on it, it's on broadcast TV. The thing is, it's not in the things that they read. It's not really in the Telegraph. It's not really in the Mail. It's not really in the Sun. We have not, or the Express. We, we haven't really, I think, sufficiently discussed how just what an abysmal state 
those newspapers have gotten into over the, over this period. And that is not, I mean, they're, they're all Brexity papers, but that does not cut down that way in the public at large. And the public at large, if anything, it cuts the other way because young people are often sort of more skeptical around this stuff. Um, it's not a Brexit remain divide in the population, but it is in the press. And the shit you read, like when you have to do, I mean, I obviously don't read the Daily Mail on a, on a, on a regular basis, much as I wish to escape my echo chamber. I actually fucking don't. And I really like hearing from people who know what the fuck they're talking about. But when you do read the mail, the stuff you see in it, it is just conspiracy theory nonsense. I mean, it, it has degenerated into a form of conspiracy theory. That's what they're reading. That's what they're taking from it. I also think, by the way, in addition to the economics point, I'm not sure that Boris Johnson thought he could get a vote through on masks in the Commons. Right. So much of the Tory party at this stage is just losing it, on, on specifically on the issue of masks, that I'm not sure he could get the vote through and he didn't want to rely on Labour. And I think that may well have also played a role. Yeah, I mean, you even had the care minister, Helen Watley, saying on Monday that she couldn't wait to stop wearing a mask. And then, of course, a few hours later, I had to say it would still be appropriate on a <laughs> crowded train or something like that. Gavin, what do you make of, of Sajid Javid's disposition in the role of health secretary? Uh, you know, Hancock's affair turns out to have been the best thing for Johnson, it seems, if he continues with the hawkish plans for unlocking that, that Hancock maybe had more of a break on. Well, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, the big picture seems to me to be we've got a government that constantly talked about dates, not data. And then when faced with anything, it sticks to the dates. And this is exactly what they did with Brexit, which was I cannot think of any major business in this country that would decide on the biggest thing that they've ever done, deciding a date for it instead of deciding what the heck it was, which is what happened to Brexit. So we're doing exactly the same thing. There's going to be July 19th and we're going to do something and it's going to be, a, you know, it will be the terror of the world. I know not what it is. It's sort of King King Lear on acid. Um, and as for Sajid Javid, you know, he has, I think he probably would make a very fine Chancellor of the Exchequer. I mean, his politics, whether you like it or not, he's probably pretty competent. But uh, if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So he's suddenly in the health department and everything looks like a financial risk to the economy. So what does he do? He says, we're going to stick with this and, and we're going to move forward. And we have, we have a selection of arts and other graduates telling us how important science is without understanding it. I, I was lucky enough to talk to um, Sir David Spiegelhalter, who's one of the leading statisticians in the country. And he was telling a story about showing politicians a graph of death rates. You know, if you're in your 20s, you're not likely to die of anything particularly soon. If you're in your 80s, you're going to die of something. So the graph goes up. He put on top of it the graph of COVID. And it's exactly the same, because if you're young, you're probably not going to die from it. And if you're old, you're not. He had politicians saying, so it's just the same death rate. And he had to explain, no, it's both of them, both. So I'm not suggesting Saji Javid was one of them, but what I am saying is that we don't have, uh, we have so many experts in this country who know what they're doing, who understand the figures, and they don't end up in parliament and they don't end up in government. And why? Because it's really about party management and loyalty. The whole thing is about party management and loyalty. So Boris Johnson doesn't do things because he knows he can't take the Conservative Party with him. He decided to publish his piece about Brexit because he can take the party with him. So it's party before country. And unfortunately, the party, the Conservative Party, is not the party that it used to be. Let's put it politely. Well, the role of health secretary has sort of been a bit of a poison chalice role for many that have held office before, um, you know, obviously most recently Hancock, but 
Jeremy Hunt ended his reign as health secretary as a pariah uh, among junior doctors in particular. Is there any hope that maybe the same is going to happen for Javid quickly, do you think? Well, well, there's, there's, there's two or three things there. One, one is that uh, I didn't realise till I wrote my, my book on, on how Britain ends, is that we've got four chief medical officers. So it's very heavily devolved. Scotland's got its own, Northern Ireland's got its own, Wales has got its own, and England. And England is in particularly a mess because Andrew Lansley pushed through some reforms about 2012, which were described to me as being like uh, administrative spaghetti. And now the, the government of the same party is unpicking those ludicrous reforms and mm. going to have a, presumably another set of really well thought out reforms yeah. uh, or not. <laughs> but the role of health, health secretary is difficult. I mean, I remember John Reid, Labour minister who'd served in a number of positions, tells a story about being called in by Tony Blair. And his first words were, it's not health, is it, Tony? <laughs> and it was health. <laughs> so could we ever have a kind of US style ministerial recruitment from you know either public or private sector in this country that that might get around that do you think like wouldn't Chris Whitty make a much better health secretary than Hancock or Javid or could we just not break the democratic link on that kind of stuff? Well, it's a democratic, there's also a bureaucratic link. I mean, I remember Gordon Brown tried the government of all the talents. Remember the goats? That's right, yeah. And I, I met one or two of them. They were really great people. Ali Dazai, who was a, a, a fantastic clinician, and he was brought in to have a look at the NHS and try and figure out how to do it. And I remember him, he said to me at the time, they don't want me to think. I said, who doesn't wow. want you to think? My civil servants and all the politicians, they just want me to go and open, you know, hospitals and things. He said, I want time to think. And they, they want, and he, he, great guy. I mean, a really, really great guy. So it, he, I think you would have to have a degree of brutality. And the other thing you have to have is support within the governing party. Mm. And if you've got that, then you can get things done. And if you've not got that, you can't get anything Forget done. It forget it. Now, Sarah, as we are moving into some kind of further on lockdown, really interested to gauge your kind of feelings about that, because you write about your aversion to crowds and loud noises in the book. So is it safe for us to assume that 2020 was, you know, kind of nice for you as the world retreated inside and even crowds in, you know, in shops and supermarkets kind of quite quickly became a thing of the past? Yeah, I mean, obviously it was mixed because um, I'm not a sociopath and like I'm not enjoying all the death and horror and loss of livelihood and everything. You know, it's been such a terrible year for everyone. So it feels kind of like terrible for me to sit here in my nice house with my like job from home and be like, I'm having a lovely time. Um, I... I think there's been aspects of it that have been really hard. It's hard for me not to see my people, like my mum, you know, that was, that separation was incredibly difficult. My nephew and things like that. In other ways, it was blissful. And in other ways, it was difficult, like loss of normal routine and things like that. So I think it was a mixed bag for, for, for lots of autistic people. The anxiety sort of offsetting the, the lack of anxiety from other things. I did sort of settle into a nice groove where I became quite happily agoraphobic and just thought, you know what? I don't, I've got everything I need here. Why, why bother with outside at all? This is great. Um, and I sort of still feel like that. Um, I think what's going to be really difficult for me and for other autistic people as things start to open up is not 
just the opening up, but the uncertainty and the anxiety about, you know, potentially passing on a, a yeah. deadly disease or catching it yourself and becoming unwell or the virus mutating or, you know, and other people not wearing masks and also the uncertainty around etiquette. It's really hard to know how to assert your boundaries in the situation as, as sort of airy fairy as that sounds say, look, you know what, don't touch me or um, please wear your mask or like, don't come too close to me. It, it's all well and good in theory, but when you're faced with that and social situation it is really hard to tell people no um or you know tell people in advance sorry i'm gonna be the party pooper here so yeah it's it is mixed it's very mixed now look lots of the data is self-reported when it comes to long covid initial data is suggesting that long covid might be more common in women and women's health concerns are, are very often treated less seriously, as we all know, and as I'm sure you've probably experienced. By unlocking now, is Javid risking a health crisis over a much longer term? Well, look, I suffer from fibromyalgia um, and sort of chronic fatigue that comes with that. And so I know firsthand what it's like to have a long term health condition that is debilitating and that basically takes you out of circulation and out of action. And yet, I mean, look, I'm not a health expert, but from my own personal experience, if there is a large number of people experiencing this kind of debilitating fatigue and long term health repercussions, yes, absolutely, it is you know, it's really short-sighted. It's short-sighted in general. It's short, short, in my opinion, it's short-sighted in economic terms, even to say, let's open up now to save the economy. Because in the long term, what you're doing is pretty much ensuring that the virus mutates, that all of our vaccine progress is potentially lost, that we have to shut down the entire economy again, instead of having a little bit of patience, waiting it out that little bit longer, and just making sure that we're all protected, and that we have proper safeguards in place before we start, you know, going gung-ho and unlocking everything. So yeah, the whole thing is short-sighted and just absurd and I don't understand it and like Ian says the only explanation is that we are being run by incompetent babies I can't I can't <laughs> yeah I couldn't have put it better Sarah Gibbs is a comedy writer and author of Drama Queen her memoir about growing up and feeling like society was a party that she just hadn't been invited to she only put a name to that feeling at the age of 30 when she was finally diagnosed as autistic. Sarah, at first you were sceptical when friends and family suggested autism. And then you, you say in your book that an online quiz just changed all of that. So tell us, what was your perception before your diagnosis and, and why were you sceptical when they, when they sort of mooted it as a, as a potential thing that you might have? Uh, two words, Rain Man. <laughs> I, I, I am not he. Um, you are not. No. <laughs> I think that I think that that film probably did quite a lot of cultural damage to the perceptions of what autism looks like, um, and you know, it created this stereotype that has not only um, been the bane of my life in terms of trying to sell any autism-related pro project to anyone, because um, all TV producers and commissioners think is like well that that doesn't ring true to my experience of autism because like, that's, that's, that's tv autism and it's a self-perpetuating narrative that like you're like oh that doesn't seem right to me um but but in more general terms not just in terms of my career damn them 
um it yeah it has created this not just rain man but you know characters like sheldon cooper if you are not mathematical if you are highly empathetic if you are highly creative if you're all of these things if you can mask um in social situations and you can you know I guess, hide your difficulties and pass as neurotypical, then you assume that there's no way you can be autistic. Autistic didn't even cross my mind because my perception of autism was rooted in all of these ableist stereotypes that I think, you know, I feel really terrible that it took me finding out I was autistic to sort of stop and challenge that. But it was a shock. And I think, it took a while to absorb like you know my i had a cousin who was really very insistent that that i look into what autism looks like in girls and women and i looked at some um some clinical profiles from clinical psychologists that they'd sort of amassed over the years and it really did feel like somebody had been following me around with a notebook <laughs> so was it quite quickly replaced by a sense of relief that you at least had an inkling of what it you know might be I mean, it was more than an inkling. It was a downpour. I just, it just felt like this is so specific and so um, all encompassing. When I first found out about potentially being autistic, I was like, oh, I don't want another thing wrong with me. And I can't even begin to deconstruct what was wrong with that sentence. But, you know, first of all, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, But, you know, it wasn't another thing that I had. It was a thing that I am that explained all the things that I had and did and felt like. How would or even could an earlier diagnosis have changed your life, do you think? And and is it any easier now for young women to have their cases taken seriously? I think it's getting a little bit easier, but I still I think we're so far away from where we need to be. I think there are so many clinical psychologists whose training is still stuck in, you know, the the 80s and 90s where their model of autism is this linear left to right mild to severe model. There are still clinical psychologists that have this extreme male brain theory that they think you know autism is only a male condition even if you get to a an autism professional they Mm. might not necessarily recognize um, Mm. how autism can present in women and girls and and also people who've been socialized as women and girls because there is a huge prevalence of autism um, and a a crossover with being transgender so that Mm. is another thing to take into account but for me personally I don't know if an early diagnosis would have changed a lot I think it might have done more damage in the community I grew up in I'm sure that my parents wouldn't have done this to me but there are parents who, you know, feed their kids bleach or give them bleach enemas or send them to really harmful, you know, uh, sort of what I would call conversion therapy for autistics. And yeah. it is controversial. And there are parents I know who would disagree with me. But I'm speaking from not from my own experience, but speaking to autistic people who've been through these therapies where they are tried, you know, effectively being made to be more neurotypical and hide and mask their own personalities and characters in a way that is really traumatic and harmful and and um yeah so I wonder if if I my parents might have been sucked into the world of woo when it came to trying to cure me um which is a real danger for some autistic people now you told the Jewish Chronicle uh, that you'd I love this by the way that you'd been misdiagnosed as Jewish um, your former <laughs> Jewish family in North London and and I know exactly what like, as soon as I read the sentence I knew what you meant you know because my Jewish family are like that too like the directness uh, that that comes with with that kind of culture and um, how much of our awkwardness around autism do you think might just 
be down to the fact that like, you know, that that kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Englishness of, of, you know, many people just can't deal with uncomfortable things head on. Yeah, I think we have a veneer of politeness here. Things are wrapped up in, in you know, uh, like a neat little language that is really hard for autistic people to speak. I did spend some time in Israel when I was in my 20s I, and I spent some time working there. And it is night and day because it's such a blunt culture there where, you know, um, for better or for worse, you know, I would say something and people would be like, sir, die, which doesn't mean what it means in English. It means stop enough. Um, but, you know, um, they weren't just being awful. They would just tell you straight up, if you were being annoying, you'd just be told to shut up. Um, you know, and, you know, one of the first things you'll be asked if you meet an Israeli is like, how much do you earn? There are no boundaries. And so it's a lot harder to cause accidental offense or to not put on the right airs and graces you know there I and also I think there is quite a prevalence of autism as well in the Jewish community we don't talk about you know I think it is there is quite there are quite high numbers that have the statistics to hand so maybe there is some sort of cultural neurological crossover I'm not sure Maybe there is. One other thing I just wanted to ask you, and then I'm going to ask uh, Gavin and Ian if they've got any questions for you, but you said you're not a spokesperson for autism, but do you think the government has given enough or any consideration even to autistic people or even those suffering from things like serious anxiety during the pandemic? And, And if not, what should they have done? I think we have been used in a way that is quite cynical. I think um, by in a, in a sort of culture war, in a way that by people who never have our best interests at heart, suddenly saying, "Well, I don't have to wear a mask because you know I might have a special, like you know, I might have something different about me. I might have a hidden disability, or whatever." And um, and it's so incredibly cynical that we are being used for people who just can't be bothered to put on a mask. That's upsetting. I mean, I'm not sure about you know specifically in the pandemic, but I did. Um, um, I did put this question out to Twitter about what could the government be doing for autistic people because I felt like it was just too big a question for me on my own. And the overwhelming results that I got back were, first first of all, better and faster access to diagnosis because getting a diagnosis on the NHS is a nightmare. It is years of waiting and it is GPs who don't have adequate training writing people off at the point of contact saying, oh, you can make eye contact. You can't possibly be autistic. You know, you're married. You can't like, <laughs> wait a minute, you're worthy of love. You can't you're possibly be autistic. <laughs> yeah, all of that. Exactly. Um, you know, so it's very difficult. So, you know, examining those processes and trying to speed up diagnosis, diagnostic waiting times would be amazing. Autistic-led policy on things like access to work and protections in the workplace. One activist, Pete Warmby, said that he would like to see current legislation, um, the Equality Act, being more specifically worded because he feels it's too vague to protect autistic people. Um, Better understanding of autistic people in in the public sector, better training, which always has to be autistic-led, hiring more autistic people, more training in government schools, um, in the police, especially when it comes to handling autistic meltdowns and, and identifying that and not treating autistic people like a danger to themselves or others if they are just overwhelmed and autistic meltdown is not involuntary thing. I'm talking really fast because I've got a lot to get in. People had a lot to say. Working with the correct assumption that autism is for life rather than making people reassess their disability allowance every, I don't know how often it is. I've never, I've never um, 
uh, sought allowances. I've been very lucky, but for anyone seeking benefits or services, not to have to constantly reassess because you are autistic forever. And the same assumption that you are not going to be abandoned by services the minute you turn 18, you are still autistic. And also um, people have called to ban harmful behavioral therapies like um, applied behavioral analysis because they have been linked to a lot of trauma in autistic people who've been through them. So yeah, people had, I mean, there's so much, there's so much that still needs to be done for autistic people and understood. Sarah, I want to ask you about writing political satire. I loved your comment at the start about how do I make this funny? And I could understand trying to do it day after day after day. But isn't the other problem that the government itself is a kind of slapstick government? If you, I mean, of course, we have to take it seriously. But it is very difficult in the era of Trump and Boris Johnson doing a kind of competition to be Lord Farquaad from Shrek with their funny kind of comments uh, to, to, to compete with that kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, I, I'd love to pretend that it was, you know, it was really easy and we're all geniuses. I mean, so there were some real geniuses in those writers' rooms who just somehow took the news every week and made it hilarious. I don't know how they did it. But, you know, it was really hard because, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll probably get to this later um, when we talk about underrated things, but it is really hard to you have this accountability to not um, make these horrific, selfish, nasty, uh, you know, heartless people seem like harmless buffoons. You, and it's really easy to do when you are overworked and tired and working for five different comedy shows and just trying to find a new angle on things. It is really easy to neutralize these people when you're trying to skewer them. I mean, it was hard and um, I'm not going to pretend I led the charge there. I very much followed the lead of writers with a lot more experience than me and I learned a lot from them on how to do that. But it was not an easy process. Do you need to be a politics nerd for this i mean how much of a politics nerd are you is it, is it could it be any sort of subject matter it's just that current affairs has a, a sort of market for the satire or do you actually really need to be like deeply invested in this stuff to be able to make good gags about it middling i would say that you need to be right in the middle because if you are a politics nerd and you're over invested and i had that problem because i am a bit of a politics nerd or i certainly was mm. i have had a little bit of a restaurant i turned off at the beginning of my, the pandemic all of my notifications and all i don't follow it as obsessively anymore because it was just it was just so bad for my mental health um and after you know four years of really intensively watching everything unfold and watching everything unfold on twitter and all the discourse and it gets so toxic mm. i think if you are so invested in it that you're following every utterance of every politician then you are not on the level of the lay person who's watching the news who is mm. aware of things but isn't necessarily obsessively aware and so you're not going to be looking for the angles that have cut through you're like oh look at i remember <laughs> i kept pitching this sketch over and over and over about jeremy corbyn signing apples and people are like <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean signing apples i think like, no you know that bit in that vice documentary where he signs some apples it was hilarious They're like sarah nobody else knows what you're talking about <laughs> Um, there's other you know there's then there's the other extreme where people come into these writers rooms you know from other like non-political backgrounds and they just sink because they don't know what's going on but you know sometimes they come up with brilliant things because they're so detached from it that they see an angle that we're all you know it's all wood for the trees for us it is difficult to to find that balance um i think um 
I did have something really clever to say and I've completely forgotten what it is. So it's like replicating the writers from experience. Um, I'll say it in a minute and then one of the men can repeat it louder. And then we'll just, for the record, I, I want to take that role. So if you can just whisper it whenever you come up. Is it quite difficult to distinguish between the comedy programs in that respect? So, I mean, is something, have I got news for you gag is very different to a MASH report gag that is very different to a mock the week gag. I, or, or can you... I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that you said that there's a small pool of writers. So what that means is the same people are writing basically all of the current affairs satire shows, but I'm guessing they're writing in different ways for different shows. Yeah, not all of them. I mean, it is, it's a small pool in Radio 4. And uh, uh, that's, that's what I was going to say. Coming back to um, what you're saying about, is that the only route in to comedy? Yes, that is the only, like in this country, pretty much, um, unless you are a performer, that is the only way into comedy writing um, is to go through Newsjack and then to sort of work your way up through the Radio 4. I mean, there are other routes and there's self-publishing and there's all sorts of things, but that is, that is the main traditional route. Um, so that is why there's a small pool. Um, it's because, you know, by the time people have been weeded out, you know, in the first few years, I think people either get knackered from it or they love it and they, they really thrive on it and they do well. But have I got news for you actually does have a distinct team of writers. And while there are people like me who come in for trial days or, or, you know, get their credit on it, it it's own sort of self-contained thing in the radio four circuit, you will go into writer's rooms and see the same thing. You will know everyone mostly. I mean, it's very rare that I'll go into a Radio 4 writer's room and not know more than one person. Sarah, I've got a question for you. Um, how far do you think we've come in recent years in terms of autism and comedy? And, you know, if I think about things like Little Britain and the League of Gentlemen, they weren't that long ago, but they have depictions that I think really shouldn't fly today and, and probably hopefully don't. Have we fixed it yet or have we still got a, 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 are we still on a journey with it? No, we have not fixed it, um, but we are working on it. Um, I think there is a problem with disability in general. I think disability is one of the last things that people don't really know how to laugh with. I think it's a matter of who's speaking and who's writing it. And the problem is that a lot of disability comedy or comedy about disability or disabled people is written by non-disabled people and often acted by non-disabled people and, and we are making changes in increments um and it's getting better but it's still there's this odd dichotomy of like um people are fine with um disability being the punchline like if you think about arrested development even one of the most popular comedy shows and i love arrested development for what it was but when i look back on it disability just was like often the joke um, yeah. you know, I, I, there was like a really sort of wild abandon use of the R word, which was obviously, um, not okay. And in America, I know it was more okay until recently, but it still wasn't okay. Um, and that was the punchline that somebody had an intellectual disability. Sorry, a spoiler alert, but that was the punchline of an entire storyline was that, you know, someone was too self-absorbed to notice that somebody had an intellectual disability. And it's, it's this weird dichotomy because like, you know, the the stand-up Bethany Black, she's wonderful and really funny. And somebody came up to her after a show and said, you can't laugh at, at being autistic. My son's autistic. How dare you laugh at that? It's like, well, you know what? We are allowed to laugh at ourselves, you know, after how long of being pointed and laughed at by, by abled people. 
I hope that the landscape of comedy is evolving. TV is a little slow to catch up. You know, all I will say is watch this space. There are lots of us working on it and hopefully we will get something away soon and you'll see something more authentic on your TV screens. And, you know, and um, what was great is, you know, recently there was Dinosaur and I haven't caught up with it yet, but, you know, it did star Ashley Story, who is herself autistic. Um, So, you know, there are strides in the right direction, definitely, but we've got a way to go, I think, still. Well, more power to your elbow. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where each week and subject to a lengthy VAR review, we pick the winners and losers in the world of politics. Sarah Gibbs, you're up this week. What are your choices? Tell us what's overrated and underrated in your world. I think what's overrated is Boris Johnson as a source of topical comedy. (laughs) (laughs) As much as he is a a comedic character, that's the danger, isn't it? You know, we, the temptation is to write him as like, Oh, piffle, puffle, little And like that's, that's normalizes him in a way. I hate that word, but you know, it makes him, it makes him really seem innocuous and like, you know, like a bumbling buffoon who doesn't know what he's doing. Hardy, ha ha. And he plays into that and it's so infuriating and it's really hard to write him any other way because, that's what he is uh, what is underrated is the Lib Dems they are always funny they are always funny <laughs> go on I'm I'm here for this content Sarah <laughs> is it coming oh the, I mean I don't know if I even need to elaborate I remember there was a, a period where I became obsessed with how how few of them there were um to like and when they had a wide open goal with Brexit and and Corbyn and people feeling you know politically abandoned and it's like how are you still so crap i remember um uh, writing a sketch where um they um they were having their annual party conference at um, a booth at pizza express um and they brought a voucher uh, which would be fine as long as no one had a romana base um so yeah really just an untapped i think in their anonymity um, mainly like I don't even I, I would consider myself quite politically engaged and I cannot for the life of me remember the name of the Lib Dem leader right now I don't know I don't know who it is is it a man is it a woman is it is, is it a, Ed Davey. A, okay is, is it a mop with a hat I don't know it could be anyone well we're almost at the end of the show which means it's time for but your emails and today Rob Kinnear asks What do the panel think about the quote by Tory strategists that Gareth Southgate's patriotism essay was, quote, suspiciously well written? And that (laughs) came from the FD article. And that Gareth Southgate is a tool of the deep woke. Ah. Are we really going down a reds under the bed approach to everything? Gavin. Well, first of all, astoundingly patronising, as if Gareth Southgate, because he'd been a footballer all his life, somehow can't string two words together. He's a perfectly articulate gentleman, and he makes more sense than half the cabinet, as far as I'm concerned. And as for the word woke, the word woke is never used. I, I don't think anybody really would say they are woke. It is only used as a term of abuse, as far as I, as far as I can see. And I suppose having seen some of the people who use the term woke, the opposite must be asleep or something catatonic <laughs> or something. I don't know, because some of them seem to be uh, just not not all there entirely. So it's, it's a lovely thought, isn't it, that Gareth Southgate couldn't possibly have thought of some words. He can lead the England team, we hope, to victory, but he couldn't have thought of some words from the heart about the state of this country. 
I think he could. So patronising. Ian? Someone did a gag on Twitter uh, today when the news came out from Grant Shapps that they didn't have enough sort of uh, heavy goods vehicle drivers, so he's going to change the regulations after Brexit to make sure that drivers can drive for longer. 72 hours straight without a break or whatever. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. What we've all dreamed of in our post-Brexit wonderland of, you know, (laughs) burly men, their eyes bloodshot with amphetamines on their 24th hour of driving. Um, and someone on Twitter was just like, yeah, it's just part of the government's war on woke. And that, to me, was the best <laughs> use of woke that I'd heard all week long. Certainly far better than deep woke, which doesn't even really literally work on its own literal terms. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the show. My big thanks to Ian. Thank you very much. Gavin. Thank you very much. And Sarah. Thank you. All of their books, all of them. And some of them have written more than one. They're available at all good bookshops. Uh, and if you get them all at once, tell them that, oh, God, what now sent you? And on this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, we may never scan a QR code again. Test and trace, masks and social distancing will all be over in England in two weeks' time. I mean, it's not obvious that test and trace ever really began. But it's <laughs> from our strange 16 months of lockdown that we'd actually want to keep. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Uh, it's a big shout out from me to Tom Kenyon. Gren Nation, Christine Baker, Brian McGowan, and Peter Gray. Hello, and thanks for your support to Matthew Giles, Richard Tinkell, Matthew McClellan, Patrick McCarthy, and Paul Garner. And thanks from me to Ryan S., Roberta, Connor Brennan, Vicky, and Sally Kemble Smith. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Naomi Smith, with Ian Dunt, and Gavin Esler. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese, and I want it on record that I predicted the score. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, we're getting our wonder bras on and our rave whistles at the ready in preparation for England's unlocking. But the country's seen profound changes in the way we work, meet and travel. So what parts of lockdown life are here to stay? And what would we want to keep? Now, Ian, you've spoken on the podcast before about how much you miss being pushed into a sweaty armpit on the tube. But what are you going to miss about zooming in your pyjamas? Sorry, it's just, I mean, you saying that out of context just makes me look at Gavin and Sarah and be like, look, to be clear, that quote is being taken out of context and it wasn't quite as fucking weird as it was then. Secondly, we have editorial meetings. For the, I know it sounds like this podcast doesn't know what the fuck it's doing and generally that's how it comes across, but we do actually have editorial meetings. And the underlying, the subtext of this question is that in all of those editorial meetings for the last year and a half, I have been in my pyjamas. <laughs> so I think it's quite strange now for any member of the cast to see me wearing actual clothes <laughs> with buttons on me. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I can't, I find this question really fucking hard to answer because I, 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 I'm sort of caught in this 
web of laziness. So I fuck it. I've never been happy uh, leaving the house, and I am I am a fucking lazy piece of shit, and I always have been. Like, I mean, I you know there was a reason that I spent like a lot of my life smoking cannabis because I was the perfect kind of person to smoke cannabis. So just like you just want to sit at home and play video games, and that hasn't changed <laughs> even though I'm approaching forty years old. And the thing is. The, but I'm not a true... That I'm was a trailer a for the true. Extra Time edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we will appreciate it enormously. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.